0: Well, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Faith Church. And uh, y'all get me for Palm Sunday, which I'm excited to be here, and I am thankful for the opportunity to uh, uh, preach. Um, I'm going to be talking about, well, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the question I have today is, if if his entry into Jerusalem was so triumphant, what went wrong less than a week later? Why did the crowds who adorn Jesus uh, um, turn on him by Friday of that week? Why does the Roman Empire, the religious leaders, and the common people just desert him after that glorious Sunday? Have you ever wondered about that? You know, Palm Sunday is is usually a time of celebration. I mean, we had the kids leading worship. They're usually, you know, waving the palm branches. And I'm, I'm sure right now they're on their way to make a craft that's full of glitter, that it has something to do with Palm Sunday, and I'm sure it's going to end up on the bottom of my floor in my car, and will be there till Christmas. I <laughs> mean, anybody have that? I'm like, wow, where did we get this? Oh, yeah, we got that from church. Great. You know, I, you know being a dad is, is pretty incredible, and um, my daughter is super kind, you know, because I find all these different snacks in the seat cushions of my car, and I really think she's just keeping an eye out for me. She's thinking of me just in case I get hungry, right? The crumbs, I can just go back to french fries. She leaves french fries for me. Wow, so kind. <laughs> That's a joke, you guys. Come on now. But doesn't it seem that we celebrate today knowing that the end, by the end of the week, Jesus dies? And, and I know, spoiler alert, he does rise from the dead. But Palm Sunday always seems a little weird for me. I'm like, why? You know, we get happy and then we're sad by Friday and we have to be happy again. It just confused me a little bit. And so I like taking things that confuse me, and I like narrowing in and going to God's Word and letting the Holy Spirit teach me something new, teach me something new uh, from a story that I've heard over and over and over again. And that's what I want to do this morning. If this is such a glorious Sunday for all Christians— what goes wrong by Friday that Jesus will find himself betrayed by one of his own disciples, arrested by the high priest, scarred, uh, accused by a coalition of religious leaders, tried by the Roman governor, and sentenced to die a death of a common criminal? This morning, I hope that I can give some context, some background, and um, maybe we could put ourselves in the shoes of the Jewish people and maybe some of the religious leaders and the Roman Empire. That we, we can have a better understanding of what happened. I pray that today will be a start um, as we prepare our hearts um, as we head into Passover week. Um, and Good Friday is this Friday. And like I said during announcements, we have a Seder meal that will be presented by Jews for Jesus. And Like I said, the the Seder meal is a symbolic meal made up of several different components that are used to retell the story of how God delivered the Israelites from ancient Egypt into freedom. And this is the event for the whole family, and we get to use all our senses. We'll be tasting things. We'll be smelling things. We'll be seeing different things, and I know there'll be some worship music. Um, The Jews for Jesus, they're coming from New York, so this is actually a pretty... Uh, a big event and it 's free, completely free. you can sign up. We have a five o 'clock um, service and a seven o 'clock service so you can sign up by the adult information counter. be sure to, to write your name now so we can we know how much to prepare for. but before we go any further hey let 's just pray together and um, then we 'll continue uh, opening up uh, god 's word so dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you uh, for this morning. I thank you. Um, that we're all able to be here and uh, worship you, Lord. I thank you for um, the kids who just led us in worship and the leaders and, and the, the teachers that are pouring into our kids and uh, allowing them to sing truth and, and to be able to hang on to the truth, that they are a child of God and that you love them so much. And you love us as well, Lord. I just pray that um, you give me your words as we dive into the Scriptures. Your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the Jews celebrated Passover as a commemoration of their liberation from God, for God um, from slavery and oppression that they experienced in ancient Egypt. And so the Passover started on the 15th of the Hebrew month, Nisan. And it's not the car, it's a Hebrew month. It it's, uh, would have been March um, in our calendar. And it lasted for seven days. And the celebration revolved around the temple in Jerusalem, which the Jewish people would offer sacrifices. One of the sacrifices they would offer is um, the first fruits of barley. Barley was one of the first fruits that would ripen, um, one of the first grains to ripen um, in ancient Egypt. So they'd harvest that and they'd be bringing that to the temple for a sacrifice. As well as they'd offer animal sacrifices um, to uh, atone for sin. Um, That's what they had to do back then. And and so this was um, a celebration that revolved around the the temple in Jerusalem. And so we're going to see, we're going to be in John chapter 12, and we're going to see Jesus is making his way, uh, along with hundreds of thousands of other Jews, um, to Jerusalem for this celebration. We'll be in uh, John 12, 12, and so we can throw that scripture up. Otherwise, if you need a Bible, um, we're now putting our Bibles on racks um, as you're coming in. I'm um, through the sanctuary, but if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. One of our ushers will get um, it to you. Um, otherwise, everybody has a Bible on their smartphone, right? And I'll have it up on the, on the, the, the screen there. But it's important that, the, to see where um, this is all coming from, to be able to look for yourself in God's Word and not just take my word for it, but take a look at, at what it is. And so this is the day before Jesus enter, enters Jerusalem, the day before um, He's there for Passover, and he makes a pit stop in Bethany, and so let's turn to John 12, 1 through 11. It says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him, and so there's something we can learn here, all right? This is really, really important. It's in, it's in the scriptures here, so... If somebody raises you from the dead, what are you supposed to do? You throw them a party, you throw them a dinner. Hey, I just want to make sure you guys know that if you ever experienced that. Got to, got to have a party for that person in their honor, right? And so that's what they were doing uh, for Jesus, because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. He says, then Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume but judas iscariot one of his disciples who was intending to betray him said why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor but he was but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it therefore jesus said let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for you have always have the poor with you, but you do not always have with have me. So those of you who remember their literature class would probably be like, "Whoa, he is foreshadowing his death right here." Um, but I don't think they caught that. The one thing I want to point out is, what if we worship Jesus the way that Mary did? Mary was all in. You know, she she didn't really care what was going on around her. She didn't really care what people thought um, about what she was doing because she was worshiping Jesus. It was just her and Jesus. And that's really what worship should be about. It's between you and Jesus. You know, 300 denarii was worth a whole year's worth of wages. It was a lot for Mary to be able to do that, to give everything that she had. What would it look like for you to worship Jesus, with everything that you have. And I'm not, I'm not talking about giving all your money or, or anything like that. But what about your heart while you're here on a Sunday morning, even as we're singing uh, worship songs? You know, for me, sometimes I can, get, I can make worship about myself because I start thinking, uh, what will people think if I start singing off-key? Or what if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not, a, you know, a very good musician? Or I start making mistakes Um, when I'm playing guitar or playing piano, and I'm taking the focus off of Jesus, and I'm putting it on myself. Or how about we're concerned, like, you know, I don't know what my neighbor's going to think of me if I start raising my hands in worship. Or, you know, what happens if I start singing, you know, I don't really have a good voice, or whatever, and, and, and you're concerned about what other people are doing around you. What would it look like to be like, hey, Jesus, you're here I'm here, and I'm going to worship you because of who you are and what you've done for us. That's what Mary was doing. Mary realized that this is the Messiah. I'm going to give everything I have to him, and I don't care what other people think. I think that's beautiful. You know, our culture has become very good at suppressing our emotions. We're always worried about other people. Let's not do that. Let's let's be a church that that worships Jesus, him, him, Me and him. Amen? Let's continue. The large crowd. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came him, not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Now, the chief priests and the religious leaders have already conspired that, hey, this Jesus guy is not good for us because the religious leaders were concerned, um, but not because they were concerned about his safety. They were concerned that Jesus was challenging their way of life. They were comfortable. They were part of this um, oppressive culture. They were uh, a part of this like domination system that would keep people in the place. And so they had a lot to lose. They had their power that they could lose. They had their position. People knew who they were, and so they conspired that they had to get rid of Jesus, but now they have to get rid of Lazarus because Lazarus is living proof of who Jesus is and what Jesus uh, had done. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. Y'all following me? You good? You following this? Great. Hey, I'm going to say get it. Y'all say got it, and I'm going to say good. Get it? Good. I just want to make sure y'all are tracking for me. It's going to get, we're going to go deep here. So the religious leaders didn't like that, so they had to make Lazarus die again. They planned to kill Jesus. So Now we get I want us to hang on to that just for a moment, though. So hang on to that, uh, and we'll talk more about those religious leaders. But as we continue, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written... Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's coat, as it is written. You know, that part is actually a prophecy um, uh, from the prophet Zechariah, and we find that in Zechariah 9.9, which foretold about this king who was going going to come riding on a donkey, which represented peace, not representing war. If Jesus was coming in for war, he would have been on a horse, all right, a war horse, But there's more to this passage than just a description of Jesus' means of transportation. The prophet Zechariah is speaking to the whole entire nation, all right? And the prophet is reassuring the people of Judah that God has not forgotten them. And this quote from the prophet Zechariah, when he is saying, as it is written, reassures the people. And the message that they're really hearing is God will deliver us from a nation From the oppressor. In this case, it was Rome. I want to read that whole entire prophecy from Zechariah 9, starting um, verse 9 through 13. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to all the nations. He will rule, uh, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you, because of my blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. And I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephurium. And I will rouse your son, Zion, against your son's Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. And so the Israelites, the the Jewish people, they're hearing uh, this prophecy and they're thinking to themselves, man, this Messiah is going to make everything right. He's going to... um, uh, he's going to restore our strength as a nation. We're not going to be oppressed anymore from the Romans. We're not going to be oppressed by anyone. And, um, and so this is, what, this is what the Jewish people were thinking because they're remembering this, this prophecy from the prophet Zechariah as Jesus is coming in, all right? And they're shouting something. What are they shouting? They're saying what? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is really important in setting this all up. It's really exciting, actually. And when I first learned and I read about this and I read some of the commentaries, it just blew my mind. I love doing a lot of like, the, the research to give us all context. But this word, Hosanna, translated to, uh, to Lord, save us. And so they weren't saying these things just at random. And now the, the New Testament uh, was written in Greek and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So we actually, the Greek got their translation of Hosanna from... We got our English translation from the Greek translation, which got it from the Hebrew translation. And the Hebrew word is hosha'ana. Can you all say that? Hosha'ana. Hosha'ana. And it means, Lord, save us. And what's really neat is that this word, hosha'ana, only appears once in the Old Testament. And that's Psalm one eighteen, twenty five. 25. And so if we turn there, it says, please, Lord, save us. Please, hosha'ana, save us. Please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So the, so the Jewish people, they're not saying these things at random. It wasn't like saying, well, what should we say? Then it began a slow chant. Like they were quoting uh, this saying from the Old Testament, Lord, save us. And if we go back up one verse, Psalm 118, uh, chapter, verse 24, it says, this is the day that the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, how many remember that song, uh, you know, the This is the Day? You guys remember that? This is the Day that the Lord. We should totally bring that back. What do you think? Bring that song back. We'll make it popular again. Anyway, th- this psalm that, that David wrote, so they, they say that David wrote this psalm, Psalm 118. And it was a psalm that was written hundreds of years earlier. And it, it was a song about God's goodness and his faithfulness in David's life then. But it's also a song that acknowledges God's goodness for the future. It was a song that declared, we're going to trust what these prophets are saying, that there will be a Messiah and he will save us. All right, y'all, y'all following this? To the Jewish people, this wasn't just any day that the Lord has made, because they knew that the Lord had made uh, every day, but this was the day. This was the day that they had been looking forward to for hundreds and hundreds of years. You want to know how they knew this? This is is going to get pretty sweet. So there's a prophecy um, written in Daniel, all right? Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel was written 530 B.C. When was Daniel written? 530 B.C. That's 530 years before Christ, all right? This is when Daniel wrote. And he says this, Know and understand this. And so... Daniel is trying to write down or explain a vision that he had from the angel Gabriel. The angel Gabriel was telling him this. He says, no one understand this. From the issuing of the decree, so there's going to be a decree. Once that decree is issued, there's going to be a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus, the ruler, comes. There'll be seven sevens and 62. Daniel is telling us when the Messiah will come. And people could start counting down the days as soon as this decree was issued. And you know what's crazy is we have this date in scriptures of when this decree was issued. The exact date. If you turn to Nehemiah, Nehemiah 2, uh, verse 1, it says, In the month of Nisan, right, not the car, the month of March, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, that's, that's Nehemiah dating this. And, and normally when, when they were dating something, they would say in, in the 25th day of the month of Nisan. Well, they, they don't give that date, so historians you know, agree, and Bible scholars agree that it's the first day of the month of Nisan. And it's, and it's 20 years into King Artaxerxes' All right, so that's that's the information we can get from that. And if we look at the history books, we we know that King Artaxerxes became a king in 465 B.C. And so the 20th year into it, because B.C. goes down, it'd be 444 B.C. So Nehemiah gives this date in chapter 2, Nisan 1, 444 B.C. And in our calendar, it would line up to be March 5th, 444 B.C., do you all remember when Jeremy walked us through uh, the book of Nehemiah um, a couple months ago? We went right through it, and we learned a ton. It was a really great series. Um, and, and for you guys who don't know, uh, uh, Nehemiah and King Xerxes, King King Xerxes really liked Nehemiah. And so you'll read, you can read this story. Um, Nehemiah comes in to the king, um, uh, the king, and he's looking sad, and the king asks him, you know, why why do you look so sad? Are you are you ill? You know, what's wrong? And then Nehemiah basically says, well, I'm sad because uh, the the land where my ancestors are buried in Jerusalem, it, it's all in ruins. It's lying in ruins. It's completely destroyed. It got completely leveled. And that, that saddens me. And the king asks him, well, what, what do you want? What do you want me to do? And, and Nehemiah says, you know, if you could give me some official letters, if you could make a decree, if you could... Um, You know, give me your signature. That way I can have this piece of paper and I can go and have safe passage to Judea and I can get what I need to start rebuilding Jerusalem. Do you all remember this? And so Nehemiah, the king grants it. So Nehemiah has this decree from the king on Nisan 1, 444 B.C. And according to Daniel, that was the start. You could start counting down the days when that decree was issued. Y'all still following me? All right, get it? Good. All right. So now we're gonna do some math. How many? How many like doing some math? Right. Yep. I don't like doing math, so I had to double check my work. You can double check this too. So in the pro- in the prophecy that Daniel was saying, it was it was seven seven uh, seven seven periods of seven. I guess got, I gotta say that right. First, it's seven. Yeah, seven seven year periods. Okay. Now that I didn't confuse you, seven seven seven-year periods, which is what? Seven times seven is 49. (laughs) And there will be then, he says, 62 seven-year periods, which is (laughs) 434 years. And so if you add that, 434 plus 49 is 483 years. Yay, math. So from the issuing of this decree, you can count off 483 years. And that's that's a really long time. And now the Jewish calendar basically has 360 days to it. And that's taking into account like the lunar calendar and the solar calendar. And that's that's kind of the average you get is 360 days. So if you take 483 years and you multiply it by 360 days, you get 173,880 days. So if you take that date that Nehemiah gives, March 5th, 440 B.C., and at 173,880 days, you end up on March 30th, 33 A.D., which was Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus came riding in on a donkey. And that's why everybody knew to say, Hoshana, Lord, save us. You are the Messiah. Save us. They've heard the stories of Jesus Doing the healing, they, they heard the stories of Jesus raising people from the dead, doing all these miracles. And, <coughs> excuse me. But they also knew what the prophecies had said. That wasn't new information for them. Jesus was going to deliver them. He was going to deliver them from the iron fists of the Roman Empire who was just oppressing them. Can you guys feel the excitement that maybe uh, the Jewish people could have been feeling. This is a day that they have been waiting for so long. The longing. Can you sense the longing that they were feeling? Everything that they hoped for was so close. The prophecies were all lining up. Jesus was coming in on a donkey, just like Zechariah uh, uh, predicted. I want us to hang on to that just for a moment. Hang on to that for now. Did you guys know that Jesus' procession uh, into Jerusalem wasn't the only one that day. It wasn't the only one that the city of Jerusalem saw. Roman histori- historians record that uh, the governor of Judea, which was Pontius Pilate, led an enormous procession into the western side of the city. It was a procession that displayed a, a panoply of, of Roman power. I mean, you can imagine uh, uh, the cavalry and the war horses with its massive muscles popping out, foot soldiers after foot soldiers in their armor, and their helmets, and their spears, and they have, in, they have their swords made out of the hardest steel that they could find. They have bright banners. I'd imagine, like, golden eagles uh, up on poles. And I imagine the sound of, of marching feet, beating drums, and the sounds of weapons clinking together. Just an enormous force, an enormous display of power and strength. You know, the standard for the Roman governor to be in Jerusalem, um, the Jewish capital, for its large religious celebrations during their festival, like the Passover. And they knew, the Romans knew what the Jewish people were celebrating. They were celebrating freedom from another oppressive empire. That was what Passover was all about, remembering. (laughs) And so... Uh, Pilate and the Roman uh, centurions and everybody had to be in Jerusalem so that they would discourage any uprising, any revolt against the Roman Empire. They didn't want the, the, the Jewish people to get any funny ideas. If you look back in history, you'll find out that the Romans um, occupied the land by conquering the Jews and their king like 80 years earlier. All right? And then the last major uprising happened in 4 B.C. after the King um, Herod the Great died. And that was just when Jesus was a baby, right? So this was all very fresh. This was still a, a sore subject. And, and like I said, if you read the history books, you'll find out that this rebellion that happened 80 years ago after King Herod um, passed away, that, that that rebellion resulted in over 2,000 deaths of, of Jewish people. And so Pilate's entry into Jerusalem was meant to send a message to the Jews and to those who might be plotting against uh, the Roman Empire. It was a spectacle that was meant to show the strength of the Roman Empire. It was meant to intimidate and get the Jewish people to think twice by joining such a rebellion rebellion if it was just slated to fail. Obviously, as... (laughs) Rome was such a powerful, powerful empire. And they were showing that. The two processions could not be more different in the messages that they convey. One, we have Pilate leading the Roman centurions, which asserts the power and might of the Roman empire, who who crushes anything in its past, anything that opposes them. It's by brute force. Then we have Jesus riding on a young donkey, which embodies the peace and the tranquility that the shalom, the peace, shalom, the peace of God, brings to his people. And I'm not sure if, if they knew it, but those who watched that day faced a choice. They could either serve the God, little God, little G, of the world, who appears to be full of might and power, to appears to have all the strength, to appears that the appears to have the upper hand. Or they will choose to serve a king of a very different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of God. You know, I once heard it, uh, a quote, and it, it goes something, you know, leadership is about disappointing people at a rate that they can tolerate or, or a rate that they can absorb. And by the end of Passover week, Jesus will have disappointed the crowd And the people, the religious leaders, everybody at a rate faster than they could stand. And they will turn on him. Even those closest to Jesus, the 12 disciples will either betray him outright or they'll flee in fear um, or confusion. I think a lot of people were getting caught up in Jesus' entry into Jerusalem because I think they really believed that uh, Jesus was going to make things right. Jesus was going to do for them what Rome has done for uh, the religious leaders, what Rome has done for the Roman citizens. I imagine there was a ton of excitement because we have all these people remembering the prophecies. They remember the prophet Zechariah. They're remembering the prophecy in Daniel. And then they're recalling, hey, Nehemiah wrote this date down. And he said, we can start counting down the days. And this is the day. And Jesus is going to do it. Today is the time to start celebrating. Jesus is our guy, and he's going to deliver us from this oppression. They wanted to see justice happen. Uh, They longed to be restored and experience what generations before them experienced. Um, They, I'm sure, remember or have heard stories that have been passed down and down about how life was when King David and his son Solomon ruled, right? Right? You know, it's interesting to point out that in, in one of the Gospels, in Matthew, when he's um, retelling this event, he says that people said, Hosanna to the son of David. They're placing their faith in Jesus that he would restore the glory of the nation of its splendor when David ruled. And that's, that's what the Jewish people want, after all. They wanted to be ruled like a man like David, a man so committed to God that the Old Testament had proclaimed that the coming Messiah would sit on the throne of his father, David. The Messiah would bring back the glory of Israel, would rid the nation of its oppressors, would be kind to the common people, would be caring. And I think it's important to point out that the Roman Empire, they weren't the only ones that, they were, uh, that were, were oppressing people, right? Right? The Jewish people were oppressed by the religious leaders, and Jesus came to challenge those religious leaders who were so corrupt, and he had said to them that the temple was not the only way to find God's forgiveness, and further, that the temple would be destroyed uh, with not one stone left on another, and he called all the religious leaders hypocrites. And of course, those who made their living, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the, the ruling council of the Sanhedrin and the priests and their priests, they would all lose their power and their prestige if there was no temple. <clears throat> so when Jesus miraculously saves the lame man by first saying, hey, your sins are forgiven, and then he heals him, he challenged that temple authority, right? He, he challenged that temple system. And then when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, proclaiming that the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer um, for all nations, and yet the religious leaders had made it a den of thieves, he was challenging that, that temple system. He exposed the unfair um, uh, temple tax, the, the scandalous monetary exchange rate, and the dishonest, dishonesty of those who sold animals for sacrifice. Because remember, that's before Jesus died, uh, that's what they had to do. They had to offer animal sacrifices. And so if you didn't bring an animal with you on your journey, you would have to go buy an animal at the temple. And, you know, it, it, the, the religious leaders knew, like, hey, you have no choice, so we're just going to jack the prices up. It's like, have you ever been to, um, like, uh, uh, ever taken your kid to, like, Disney, uh, like a Disney thing where they have the snow cones? And they're like, what, 20 bucks for a snow cone? You've got to be kidding me. Like that, I feel like that's unfair. But uh, the religious leaders knew that they could charge whatever they want and the people are going to pay for it. Remember when Jesus flipped over uh, uh, the, the, the temple tables? Remember that? That was all around this, this time frame. And so in a matter of time, Jesus had disappointed and alienated powerful people, he even disappointed people who loved him. And I imagine all the hurt and the pain and the unfairness of the oppression Uh, of the Jewish people, and and in their minds, Jesus was going to make it all right, and then they're finding out that that's not what Jesus is going to do. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem uh, may or may not have been planned to occur on the same day as Pilate's procession um, at the western gate of the city. Um, My opinion uh, would be that it's not a coincidence. Um, I believe that Jesus was making a point. It was a contrast between king's and kingdoms, and it was on display in Jerusalem that day. And I think a lot of people um, thought that, hey, we're going to side with Jesus, but they were doing, doing so for the same reasons that the religious leaders sided with Rome. They were thinking, well, what can Jesus do for me? They thought that Jesus could do for them what Rome had done for their rulers, make their lives better, deliver them from the oppressive system which they lived and worked. Jesus was supposed to turn the tables on the Romans. I believe that's why the crowds turn on Jesus by the end of the week. They don't think he's going to do any of those things. In addition, Jesus is actually going to make their life more difficult. You know, the religious leaders who could never agree on anything agree that if if, if Jesus causes trouble while the Romans are here, Rome is going to come down fast, swift, and hard on us, and it's not going to be good for us. Right? They didn't want to attract the attention of the Roman Empire, especially during Passover, which represented this freedom from another oppressive uh, empire. And so when Jesus accused him, when he was brought before Pilate and before the angry angry mobs, they just want to get rid of him. They don't want him causing any trouble. They don't want to be you know, stirring things up. They realize that, hey, Jesus is not going to do what we thought he was going to do, so let's just, just get rid of him. He never defeated the Romans. He never dissolved the unfair tax system. He never put the common people in charge of the government. And furthermore, he never would. And to appease the crowds that, that gathered in Jerusalem, Pilate had the custom of releasing uh, a prisoner. And a lot of them were actually just political prisoners. But on this day, in the last week of Jesus' life, Pilate offers the crowd a choice between Barabbas, a known robber, or Jesus, a failed Messiah. And fearing that if Jesus were released, that he'd just start all over again, the crowd just begged for Barabbas to be released, and for Jesus to be executed. And, and, and not just by any means, crucify him was the cry. Because crucifix, crucifix, crucifixion, crucifixion, I can say that word, was the one form of capital punishment that would show Rome that the Jews are completely loyal to the Roman Empire. And this would humiliate Jesus, even in death. It's interesting, in that prophecy in, in Daniel, in chapter 9, the last verse of that chapter, it says this, and after the 62 sevens, the anointed one, will be put to death, and will have Nothing. For one moment, ask yourselves, if I had been in Jerusalem that day, and I had seen both processions, which would have I chosen to follow? I think it's a choice that we make each day, to choose power and might, to choose what is easy to pursue money, pursue success, pursue things of this world. Or choose love, which Jesus represented, coming in on a donkey. And then him giving his life, laying his life down. Love can oftentimes, and I would say, is more difficult. The choice, we can either choose to do things the way things are done, or the way God intends them to be. Two processions, processions two ways of doing doing things. two choices. Out of love, Jesus laid everything down. He was left with nothing. Going into Passover week, I think it'd be important for us to reflect and remember the choice that Jesus made for us. Take some time to prepare our hearts as we we go in uh, and reflect on Good Friday and then celebrate together as he raised, as on, on Easter as we celebrate his resurrection. You know, Jesus made this choice to be rejected by his own people, to be abandoned, and to be treated unfairly, and to give up his position, to give up everything. And yet he chose to love by taking his cross.